concept of EI Ventures is access. I don't want to be involved with the human monetization of suffering. I sell you chocolate bars, I sell you soda, then I sell you insurance. Capitalism gave us this lie that material things would bring us happiness. So we forsake community to compete against each other to accumulate physical things. Then it turns out that working 90 hours a week in a penthouse apartment causes depression. Welcome to the Orthogonal Podcast. Uh, we go with the show, we call it Boom Time. One of my favorite things to say when we invest and we hang out with incredible entrepreneurs and people uh, that are, you know, people that are a lot smarter than us, people that are changing the world, people that are disrupting uh, just different things that we're super excited about. Um, as usual, you know, full disclosure, um, in this situation, EI Ventures is a investor in Magmetis Ventures, which is Anthony's company, and EI Ventures is an investor in Avacana, which is all, uh, which, yes. So uh, in this situation, EI Ventures uh, is both of uh, investors in both of these companies. I had to think about that for a second. Sorry, guys. Um, and I want to introduce Anthony with Magmetis Ventures. Great for you to be here today. I'm sort of tongue-tied today. Do. I was flowing and then I got tongue-tied, but it's good to have you, Anthony. Glad to be on, David. I appreciate awesome. it. Super excited. Uh, a DC native like myself, uh, Anthony and I are, were together in LA last week and something about DC, it's, uh, there's a bond there. Uh, RS is in Toronto right now. Um, RS, great having you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, David. Excited. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you're in the cannabis pharmaceutical space. You're working with us in, you're working with EI Ventures on a psychedelic model, so to say. We're working on a nutraceutical line. We are currently advising and speaking to people that have dispensaries set up in Vancouver and in Toronto that are telling us that they were in the cannabis industry they have seen this before. There are dealers' licenses that are already been given out. What does that look like? It happened in cannabis. Nobody shut anybody down. How but they did, when, right? When, so, when, so, so when am I going to get legal psychedelics in Canada? That is so, a cu couple of answers for you. I, I mean, the legal, the illegal dispensaries that used to be everywhere in Canada are, are generally gone, right? And those guys didn't generally become really? the legal dispensaries. Yeah, we have a problem with too many legal dispensaries. But the, like, now we, the psilocybin dispensaries are everywhere. They just popped up, right? And I don't think they're going to last forever. I think this is one of those things that the government is shutting them down slowly, and it's because people want access, right? And Ultimately, I think it's going to be similar to what Anthony said about the United States. I think it'll start off with a medical model where under some sort of exemption, whether it's something similar to Section 56, physicians can probably prescribe psilocybin-based medicine, and that could be then administrated, in my opinion, in some sort of clinic setting. So where right, there is. So right now, just to set the record straight, because I'm telling you, I have pitch decks 
from Canadian companies that say they can sell legal psychedelics today. I'm going to say right now, David, that Canadian companies will lie to your face about how legal and they have investment <laughs> bankers from tier one banks on their deck. No, it's super, so, super illegal. I mean, okay, come on. So, so what yeah. am I going to be? So, so just to set the record straight, because I get this again every day, I'm going to Canada to go take real psilocybin. Apparently, analogs are legal. Is what we've we've gotten from gray area, man. It's like Delta Eight. Okay, okay. so I hate Delta Eight. You know, every time they, they put Delta Eight in the in the deck, what I do is I immediately like shred the deck. So next, <laughs> so. So let's talk about when am I going to be able, when is a Canadian start resident going to be able, best case scenario, to have a real psilocybin journey? 2024, 2023? At least, yeah. But, and and I, hope, I hope the pathway they take is exactly what Anthony said. Clinic setting, you know, with the support of a physician, accurately dosed, because the, 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 negative effect or the adverse events that you can have with with psychedelics is a lot more toxic and a lot more dangerous than cannabis right like cannabis you get very high you puke worst case scenario you sleep you eat a lot where with psychedelics there's a lot of risk especially for younger generations so this is better in this in the hands of you know the the like-minded the open-minded physicians which are which we can call the next generation sort of caregivers and physicians i'm gonna i'm gonna gonna tell you this my kids go to and again, I don't want to get my kids thrown out of their schools, but I, my kids, and I've spoken about this publicly, had issues with reading like I did, definitely exemplify certain traits in Asperger's. Years ago, and my kids are only 10 and 12 now, I got to wish my son a happy birthday, Dorian, uh, but happy birthday, Dorian, but they wanted to give them Adderall. And I hate to get off this subject, but we're giving Adderall teachers at private schools that teach farming and organic this and that. The minute a child has some focus issue or reading issue, please say, please go to your doctor and get a prescription of Adderall. I'm confused. Yeah, the teacher doesn't have the right to prescribe something or recommend it in the first oh, place, but right? But why is Adderall still around? You guys both... It, it's bec- yeah, it's, a, it's become the gold standard. Yeah, both it's, of you guys must encounter these products. I mean... Yeah. I mean, I think... I think that's right. No, no, I was going to say that my answer, you know, is very specific. My, my sister was put on Adderall and Zoloft when she was nine, oh, right? Shit. And a dose, dose levels like probably four times higher than I would take on Adderall, right? Someone my size, right? And she was a kid, I and she has a hundred milligrams. Yeah, no, she was taking thirty in the morning and thirty at night as a nine-year-old, and she would have these wild come downs, right? And just be irritable and angry and nasty. But when she was on it, because she was a hyperactive child. Right. She was quiet. She was out of the way. And that's what our society medicinally has been doing. You look back to like when we first started treating things, we just treated trauma. We treated symptoms. It was all triage. Right. Now we're going into preventative medicine. Right. Really true palliative care. Right. Personal medicine. I mean, these are new novel concepts. Right. Where we're actually trying to treat the root cause of something rather than the symptom. But what comes with that is that like psychedelics, they pass through the cell wall. Right. They're not just 
latching on top of these of these receptors, right? And so with that means that you're combining the will and intention of the person, right, to be able to channel this drug. Where Adderall is a repeatable drug. No matter who you are, where you are, what you're doing, you have the same effect, right? And so and again, like and it's a big money business, right? This and so now this is not sponsored by Pfizer. <laughs> and look, does Adderall have its use cases? Do SSRIs have their place? For yeah, sure. But I think but, there are acute intervention drugs that that are limited use cases and should be really siloed for, you know, treating what a child's, the root causes of, of attention deficit disorders, right? But to go to your question around like psilocybin, right? Like I think that there should be some access to parents having the right to use plant medicine, right? Within their own right judgment. Right. But the reality is that these medical, uh, you know, trials and, and, and rules and regulations are there for a reason. Right. Because you can't trust the average person to be able to dose responsibly like you would. Right. David, like you are an expert in the field. You understand it better than anyone. You so you can bigger. take advantage of that. Yeah. You know, but like not 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 the average person. Totally. Yeah. totally. So let's let's we're at about the 55 minute one hour mark. As you were offline for a second, we're going to switch over to Avacana a little bit. What is Avacana? What do you do? Why do I come to you when I need answers on psychedelics, nutraceuticals? Why, when I woke up at 2 a.m., did I say, I have a dream team between the three of us, and we're going to create, you know, the biggest, you know, plant medicine conglomerate of companies out there. Why am I so excited? Give it to me, RS. What made me invest in literally 11 seconds? Well, I mean, first of all, thank Besides you for the kind notes. Thanks for the kind note. And I think, well, you're, you're a visionary, right? And I think everyone everyone knows that. And you've done a great job of building a team of people around you. And I, I see the things that get thrown at you all day long. And what I appreciate about you is you have the guts to just tell people to fuck off when, you know, it generally doesn't make any sense, right? So We try um, to do it in high regard. There you go. But uh, I mean, in, in terms of Avicana, like, look, I started the company in 2016. Um, I came from biotech. So I, I knew what it takes to get the medical community on board. And when I met, you know, the guys that were uh, back then known as pioneers, now they're look at, they're, they look like a bunch of idiots, were their initial CEOs of cannabis companies. And they all, at the time, cannabis was medical only. And they all praised that they're going to be uh, selling medicine and providing medicine. And when I asked them some of the basics of medicine, which is how do you standardize it? Where is the evidence? How do you convince the medical community? Their answer was, well, I'm going to grow a lot more weed. And, you know, then at that moment, I saw the opportunity, right? I saw the opportunity to build a scientific platform. So I surrounded myself with people much smarter than me, a bunch of PhDs, medical doctors, and we tackled the opportunity of medical cannabis and its potential. But we did it because we're in a federally legislated country, Canada. We were actually able to do research. So while everyone else was building indoor factories, we did R&D clinical work. We understood more about the plant. And one of the benefits of being involved on the medical side in the cannabis industry is the opportunity to sell medical cannabis, generate data, help people with their unmet medical needs, and utilize those learnings to increase the probability of success on the pharmaceutical side. Cannabis is not just about getting high? It's certainly not, you know, and our number one selling product in Canada is an epilepsy product. So we have, you know, a high CBD. Um, It's under the Rofido brand. It's a, it's a, you know, 50 milligram per ml and 100 milligram per ml CBD, which is, you know, the equivalent dose to Epidiolex at a fraction of the price. 
and children are utilizing, especially like the families of children utilizing it. Is it sold in the U.S.? It's not sold in the U.S., no. We don't operate in the U.S. because it's not federally legislated. So we only operate, we currently operate in 19 countries, which is exciting. And I think there's a misconception here. People think recreational companies have the same, same opportunities medical and then argue they don't. You cannot even cross a state line in the U.S. if you're recreational, let alone export. The United Nations Convention on Narcotics, the International Convention, does not allow the export of cannabis unless it's for medical, pharmaceutical, research purposes. Do you consider so you yourself be... an expert in the industry? Absolutely, yeah, especially when it comes to medical and pharma. I have a, you know, I I think... have a, I have a hard question for you, and I'm going to jump in. number of people knew I was interviewing you today, and I'm going to throw you right into the the lion's den. Let's do it. Your, your, your company went public at $8. Stocks trading, not at an all-time low. I came in, we put in a big investment. We're putting in more money. Uh, many people have come to me and I'm, you know, obviously this is a financial, uh, you know, this is a show based on people that invest. Uh, why did I trust or what, what gives our listeners and a, some of them are people that do deals all the time that you're not going to reverse the stock. You're not out there blowing money. Why? First of all, why did the stock go down to 30 cents? And why why is the company going to do well? And again, we're not promoting this company, but this is a question I get a lot. They're it's like, a, it's a fair why, question. Why, why yeah. are us, David? Why, why not me? Why why do you trust him that he's not going to reverse the stock? I said, because, well, I mean, so, because so, I feel people. Well, yes, and I think the fundamentals, right? Like I've been there since 2016 to build a company. I never, I didn't walk away when the bubble burst. And from the beginning, while we are associated to cannabinoids, we are not a recreational company. So I think everything that makes cannabis today as an investment, unfortunately, unattractive, is the opposite of what we do. One, it's not federally legal in the United States, and I, th I think that's a big deterrence for, for a lot of people, right? And I appreciate that, but that's essentially a recreational problem. On the medical pharmaceutical side, if you want to take the FDA pathway, you can, you know, and you can do research. On the but medical you're, you're side- you're a pharmaceutical company. And that's exactly, that's precisely it. So the yeah. first question is, why did our stock go down? Our stock went down the same way every other cannabis stock went down. And it's, in my opinion, a baby out with the bathwater syndrome because you had the big companies like Canopy Growth that blew $5 billion of money away. And everyone's made $5 billion of money and in a growing market where the revenues are growing. Like we just got the report last night that, you know, the Canadian market grew 20% year over year. Yet the big guys are going down in their revenue. Why? Because their products are garbage on, in terms of the adult use side. But my argument towards why Abicana is can, different can than the sector. Us, can you give us some, I mean, I have these check boxes from our lawyers when we make statements like that. We can't defame, can you give me, can you give me two things of why they're garbage? So we I mean, the products that were being produced, I mean, on a recreational side, on a recreational the side. The word garbage for me means trash, poop. What, what is low quality products so let's okay. let's say this on the <laughs> let's take some of the larger canadian licensed producers and i'm going to stay away from criticizing the management and the decisions that were made and some of the acquisitions they did that are now worth nothing i'm talking about the products oh the I've, products been, I've that, been in nightclubs with these guys and i've seen them blowing coke 
I mean, so, just <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a character <laughs> issue, yeah. But I mean, but I mean, let's go back to the consumer slash patients because I think that's what matters. Um, a, a recreational consumer, if they're going to buy flour, the most basic product that's out there, flour is something that needs to be grown in a perfect environment. It needs to be done, you know, with love and care and a craft level for it to be a sort of a high quality flour. These guys were building million square foot greenhouses that you cannot control the environment. So you're not going to control the quality. So that's on the flower side. And therefore, the flower that you buy from the larger Canadian LPs, in my opinion, from my experience, is substantially inferior to quality flower that some of the more craft guys, some of the guys that come from the legacy side, some of the guys that have been doing this for years are growing. Same thing. I'm going to throw Anthony into this. Anthony, you're somebody that I would go. People always say, David, where do you go to? I would go to Anthony and I would say, because, you know, we're talking about formalizing an advisory role with Anthony. You know, he's investing money on behalf of EI in his hedge fund. So my question to you is, what would you ask or ask as, as somebody that makes investments? What, do you, what are, what are you going to, when you see a stock go from $8 to 30 cents? I mean, number one, you told me the other night during dinner, which stuck with me. You don't believe cannabis is going to be federally legal in within this generation, which I completely agree with in the U.S. And I would say we all watch Tilray go to 150 bucks a share. Sort of two, three questions at once. What are you looking at when you're looking at a cannabis deal like Avocado? What are you going to ask RS? I mean, RS's deal, RS's company is a pharmaceutical company first, right? Yeah. That happens to deal in cannabinoids. But so, and it's the so only... Is it Tilray? No. Well, they're all, they're Tilray. a beer company. Okay, yeah. they sell beer. That's, that's, a great, that's a great way to put it, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. they, they, are, they are a vice product, right? It's a vice product. And when we think about vice products, especially in the U.S., the U.S., as we discussed moralizes arguments that has nothing to do with the actual argument itself, right? So if you take masks are about freedom, right? Cannabis is all about these other moral arguments and lobby arguments that will hamstring the industry, right? Prison reform, right, is a big one. Uh, race, racial equality, restorative yeah. justice is a big issue. And if you look at the, the DNA of Congress, right, it's all white men over the age of 75, by and large, right? That all come from a generation is that was reaper madness, anti-cannabis, anti right? Yeah. And Biden himself, right? I mean, he's been an advocate against cannabis forever. Kamala Harris has put more so black people in jail yeah, for cannabis Kamala. than anybody else. Kamala right? was, we knew, her, I know. we knew her in the San Francisco days. She, she was the one dropping the guillotine and, all, and everybody. So, you know, like that's the U.S., right? And so the U.S., because they, they effed up really badly with booze, right, in the early 20th century with, the, with drunkenness being an issue in the U.S. and then rolling it back and alcoholism, which we have today, they are reluctant to legalize or give validation to a new vice product, but right, the new dispenser are, what, are, what are you looking at when you look at an yeah. avocado? What are, what are you determining yeah. as a hedge yeah. fund? Like, what's yeah. your lens? Yes, for, for me, it's it's the partnerships, right, that, that, that avocado has built. Incredibly impressive. Uh, their extreme knowledge, superior knowledge of the regulations, international and domestic, around a controlled substance. Most people ignore that. 
right? And and it's critical, right, in this space to navigate it, to know where you can sell, how much you can sell, who your end user is, how what the political climate is. I mean, these that's a lot of intellectual capital that that he's built up. Uh, and then obviously the IP, right? These are defensible IPs, right? You could sell directly to patients, and also just the pharma market. People forget it's bigger. Right than the recreational one. Once it gets valid adoption, right. So I think that. Do you believe in the pharma cannabis market? I I believe in XUS for the time being. Right. I think that his approach is brilliant. Right. Build your flags in in countries with favorable forward-thinking legislation. Right. Let this generation of old cronyism die in the U.S. You're a multi-billion-dollar company in a couple of years. Then you cross over and you take over the U.S. market. So now, a, now you're so a global dominant So is that a thumbs up for EI to have more exposure? That's how I'm thinking about it. Especially as long as our ass is at the helm, I don't, okay. I don't see how this, how this doesn't end, so, right? So I appreciate Mar- it. Glory. So, so RS, tell us what, what is your, you know, we have a strategic relationship. We've now, we have a gummy line coming out. I, I want you to tell me there's fucking. If I open my cupboard, I have probably a hundred different types of gummies. Why are our gummies that we've developed together superior? What does Avacana look like in terms of strategy with EI Ventures in the next three to five years? I think we're going to be a strategic support for you guys in terms of formulation development and making sure that you have products that actually make sense. You know, and I think that comes from a scientific platform. So we've established a platform where you have real scientists, real PhDs doing the drug delivery, making sure the products are optimized, making sure that the doses make clinical sense, whether that's through literature review or that's through actual clinical work. And that's the type of work that a lot of what we can call next generation pharma companies don't do. Why, why, why did why did we, and I'm on a two-part question, this is, because you you were I was talking to you about this while I was going through this process. Why why did EI Ventures decide not to go to Nasdaq? What is your the, belief? I think I think the limitations that Nasdaq has put in the United States has put on more forward looking, more you know, in my opinion, companies that are going to leap take the leap into the next phase of pharmaceuticals. The limitations the U.S. government has put, and therefore Nasdaq has put, puts a limitation on you guys. It handcuffs you. Same reason why we're not there. We're not. We're not in Nasdaq today. It costs a lot as well, and it's the same thing. We're doing our clinical work. We're doing our proof of concept work in Canada, and we're going to come into the United States when we're mature enough, when there's a little bit more meat on the bone, right? And that's I, I the think, right time. I think. I think you knew that we weren't a good fit for Nasdaq. I think while I yeah. was talking through it with you. It, it was in the back of your mind. I mean, again, my single desire, and I'm going to go back to, you know, whether it was the best cannabis that I smoked or the best psychedelics that I took in Hawaii. Number one, in Hawaii, there's a saying, know your farmer, keep country, country. I learned a lot about quantum chemistry and quantum physics. Um my my whole thing, as I talk about a lot, is when I bought cannabis in Hawaii, I don't smoke cannabis anymore right now. I mean, I'm not taking cannabis right now just because I'm repairing my lungs, but I'd buy an ounce of premium-grade flour for $100, an ounce. When I went to California to buy the same premium, let's call it Jack Herrera, sour diesel some sour crack or whatever it's called 
It's 500 bucks. I'm not going to pay $500 for an ounce. And most people can't afford that. And I would say many of the people that I've met in AA, so to say, they smoke a quarter a day. So how's anybody going to afford 500 bucks an ounce? And I would say in psychedelics and the concept of EI Ventures is access. How do we not become, and I talk about this often, I don't want to be involved with the human monetization of suffering. I sell you chocolate bars, I sell you soda, then I sell you insurance, and then I sell you, you know, going to the dentist and obesity and everything else. How do we give access to cannabis and psychedelics on a level which I constantly talk about a billion people on earth? A billion people on earth use alcohol, they use things like coffee and other things. How do we give access? I want to start with RS, then I want to go to Anthony, both on the cannabis and psychedelic front. I mean, I think on the plant-based psychedelic front, I can relate that to cannabis and say, if you're cultivating it, you're producing it in the right environmental conditions, for example, what we do with the cannabis plant in Colombia, where we're growing it for. Uh, we're producing today somewhere between three to four cents a gram. Okay. So that's equivalent to about 30 to $40 a kilogram, right? We're talking about $20 a pound. And that's, yes, we're producing flour that we're then extracting and we're putting those into medicine. And yes, we're producing it substantially lower than other people. And it's because I'm in an environmental conditions of Santa Marta that we operate in, in Colombia. We don't need fans. We don't need heaters. We don't need air conditioners. We don't need lights. Everything is very natural and we're providing more standardization. As somebody, as somebody going through AA, let's say Canada or US, and I need some of your product because I can't afford to spend $500 an ounce, what do I do? So the problem, if someone is going through that, that's a medicinal need. That person should have access to be able to buy that product from a medicinal channel, for example, in Canada. And the, from, there's two problems there. One, is that Canada, while it's one of the largest exporters of medicinal cannabis, will not allow importation. So they're being protectionist. So I, I can today export from my Colombian operations to my Canadian operations and give access to those patients products at a very affordable price, but the Canadian government will not allow me to import. That's problem number one. And problem number two, which I think is completely understated, is the harm associated to inhalation. You said something very interesting. You said, I'm taking a break from my lungs, so I'm not consuming cannabis. Consuming cannabis doesn't only mean smoking, right? And that's one of the things that's being neglected. We're, we're putting out products that people are smoking, not us, but a lot of other companies are putting out products that are infused with additional cannabinoids. And really, if I'm wearing my medical pharma hat, there is many different, much more efficacious ways and much less harmful ways to deliver cannabis as a plant. So going back to your initial comment is how do we make this accessible? I think you got to get rid of the protectionist regimes. And I think plant-based medicine has an opportunity to be delivered the way medical cannabis is, which is essentially a general prescription or recommendation or authorization by a physician for you to buy medical cannabis. And you can choose sort of the product. They, of course, provide recommendations. That has provided access to patients. That has provided access to many patients today 
or family say that their their children are relying on my products for pediatric Which epilepsy. On, on, so you're talking about the pediatric epilepsy, but pediatric but epilepsy, somebody, chronic but, pain, sleep, but anxiety. Going, but somebody going through withdrawal, and I'm sitting in Toronto, and I want to get access to a product, and I don't have the money. It's cheaper for me to go buy a liter of vodka for five bucks. How do I get my I like to talk about real world issues of questions that I get all the then time. Then that should be reimbursed, right? So then that now we're going into the realm of should the government, should the insurance providers, like Veterans Affairs in Canada pays for the, the, the medical needs of veterans. And it's one of the largest portions of the medical market in Canada by far. And I think that's one thing that they've done well. They're paying we, for that. We have a big big problem in Hawaii with meth, fentanyl, alcohol, homelessness. The median price of real estate here is now over a million dollars. People are being pushed out of their homes. I talked to a number of people yesterday that said, we use alcohol and methamphetamines because it's cheaper than buying food. How do we get them access for cannabis and psychedelics? going to go to you, Anthony. We grew up in D.C. I, I don't know if we're allowed to say this, Chocolate City. Chocolate uh, City, baby. Uh, listen, I used to, I'm going to give you, I'm going to throw myself out there as I usually do. Uh, grew up in DuPont Circle. Uh, used to go down to tracks to pick up my dime bags. Uh, I could tell you a number of times I was almost robbed at gunpoint uh, trying to pick out pick up a dime bag of weed uh access is difficult. Uh, the drug dealer black market scenario is real. What do we do? Yeah, no, this is uh, it was a great question and there's mo there's several inflection points along the path to wide general affordable access where we could really screw this up right as a civilization. And as stewards, all three of us on this call, all this plant revolution, we have to take this, this responsibility very seriously. And a great case study I like to reference is France and how they address their opioid epidemic. They don't have one anymore. They had a 75% reduction in opioid use over a little under a decade. We have been, have, been, have been aware of the opioid epidemic in the US for 25 years plus, it's only getting worse. Why is that, right? And the number one thing is reimbursements, right? The fact that France, with the national coverage, reimburses all of the expenses around addiction treatment, where in the U.S., you're on the phone for hours with your insurer trying to get them to cover addiction treatment. It's incredibly expensive, especially if you want to go to a really good uh, on-site treatment facility, right? It's cost prohibitive, $50,000 for a couple of months, right? It's untenable. The other thing is doctors are had this uh, reluctance to... Uh, to 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 treat or resistance to or resistant to treatment in house, right? They really want to kind of like push that off to AA or to a third party. And then lastly, the DNA of an addict, right, is they they are also resistant to treatment, right? They don't think they have a problem. They don't necessarily they haven't necessarily hit rock bottom when they're ready to get treatment, right? So there's a confluence of factors, but the number one thing is costs and affordability. Luckily, psychedelics are very cheap to manufacture, way cheaper than cannabis. You don't need a farm. You don't need hundreds of employees. You don't need this massive distribution shipping network of bulk flour, right? Mushrooms, LSD, MDMA, super easy to cheap, uh, cheap to manufacture and distribute. Uh, mushrooms, as long as you're not going like the biosynthetic route, right? Like compass, for example, you can treat a lot of people very cheaply, right? And we're working on bioavailability and things like that. But with the U.S., 
the insurer payer system, two thirds of payers are private companies, right? So there's a lot, there's, there, we don't have that top down ability to drive legislation down and say, everyone needs to be covering this, right? This is going to be a movement that's done from the bottom up with folks like us. There's actually a company called uh, Anthea that is working on lobbying individual companies and payers, right? And they got Dr. Bronner on to reimburse ketamine-assisted therapy as like their first use case, right? Which I think is a good example, right? Like, so we're seeing the payer market. We need to push and lobby corporations to cover this as a employee benefit, right? That'll be the number one thing, right? And then the second thing is lobbying the government for federal employees to be able to get access to this stuff. We cover from both sides, right? And then lastly, the third piece is, you know, with this industry, I view this distribution model as being you know, having 12 legs, right? Another one is community-based care and religious institutions, right? Getting access to folks to being able to build community, come in on a Sunday, potentially do psilocybin and group therapy and group prayer and resonate together, right? I see that as another approach, right? So I think that if we do this intelligently and have a lot of touch points where folks can get access in a supervised group setting, uh, we're, we're, we're going to be able to change people's lives. So I'm going to I'm going to go into a whole different direction. Obviously, you both know I love community. You know, I love the community aspect of Web3. I'm a very big Bitcoin enthusiast. I don't think I'm a maximalist, but I love what I would call utopian vice investing. A lot of what I'm looking at and I have a lot of my peers. I'm 46 years old. Uh, my kids are growing up. They've grown up with their father being in the cannabis, psychedelic, crypto space. You know, we're involved in a lot of businesses trying to figure out, like, where is the world going from here? Uh, I know both of you guys personal personally, you guys are younger than I am. But in terms of like having children and like being in communities that that embrace this stuff. And I and the crazy part about this is. I get this all the time now, which is like, I don't know if I want to live in the U.S. anymore. I definitely don't want to live in Dubai. I don't want to live in China, but I'm looking for a community. Most people you talk to that have come to Hawaii, uh, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth. We got Mr. Zuckerberg, Bezos, Oprah, Larry Ellison. I feel like people are coming over here and we're like the new California, but the problem is, is like this place is changing also where it's totally unaffordable. And I want to zone to Hawaii a bit because this is also about empowering Hawaii. And, but what is, where are you guys? I mean, what does it look like for you? I know you love Los Angeles, uh, Anthony. I mean, I've talked to RS a bunch about Spain and you know what he's going to do in, in his life. But where do we go from here? How do we, how do we find, I'm going to use this word that I talk about, our Ohana. Where, where are our people? Because I, 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 I think about this a lot, David. I'm glad you brought this up. This is something that I'm, crossed I'm my mind a lot. I'm confused. So I think it's important to quickly note how we got here in the first place, right? And so uh, during the great industrial revolution, moving into the 20th century, and then flying into the birth of corporations, the internet, and equity valuations being a nonstop rocket ship for over 100 years. You've had wage stagnation right since the 70s, right? So 
a smaller percentage of people have been getting insanely wealthy while costs of goods keep rising and people aren't making any more, right? And so with that, they basically put us in a new feudalistic society, right? They call it techno-feudalism, right? Where there's the Silicon Valley rules us all, right? And we can't afford to buy homes anymore, right? We've been bought out of homes and we bought out of parenthood, right? And women are reluctant to have kids, not because they don't want them, it's because they don't feel like they can afford them. Kids and are men expensive. aren't... Yeah, they're too expensive, right? It's and so they create this sort of their brain protects them by saying like, oh, I just don't want kids. It's not that I can't afford them; it's just I don't want them, right? And then men, I think, aren't sticking around. The divorce rates are getting higher. Is because for men, we feel most useful when we were providing for a family. But when a man and a woman both make salaries and they can't afford to provide for their children, right? The man feels isolated and leaves, right? The man feels disillusioned, right? Or, or doesn't want to get into a partnership until they're well healed, late into their fifties. So where right? where do you where do you go? Where do you find your people? Are you are you staying in LA? Yeah. So I think I mean look like the US is a is a business first, right? It's 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 a the, collection of individuals, right, pushing for it. And in in LA specifically, and in New York, I say are are more nerve centers than they are like countries or cities in the traditional sense, right? In the sense that the culture is constantly changing through technology, through business, through cultural sharing, right? I like LA specifically because, for example, on a Sunday, I can go to. Uh, you know, little, little Thailand, uh, little, uh, Iran, little Italy, uh, Compton and Santa Monica all in one day and jump into wildly different cultures and eat the food from each culture. Right. Right. And then it has this overarching sort of Mexican influence about, you know, fun and, and community and, and surfing and skateboarding that gives it its thing. Right. But people are lonely, right. Primarily because capitalism gave us this lie that material things would bring us happiness. So we've forsaked community to compete against each other to accumulate physical things. Then it turns out that working 90 hours a week in a penthouse apartment causes depression, right? And that actually you would give any, you would give all this stuff oh, up shit. to have a, an ohana, to have a family, right? To have a community that's supporting you. So I think people are starting to wake up, right? And I think the internet is allowing, I'm seeing it more and more on Reddit, right? Where people are having meetups, right, over specific ideas or mission statements. And so I think that you're going to see, and, and especially with Gen Z, right, you're seeing a lot more of their collectivism online, right, streaming and, and sharing. Like, like and you like, you like psychedelics. You like good food. You like cannabis. We like to have a little drinky sometimes. We love good music. I'll be totally forthright for you. If I could go back to D.C., in 1994, I was the happiest I could have ever imagined. I had, and again, obviously these products weren't legal, but at the end of the day, the quality of MDMA, the quality of what we had and the people around us, it felt a lot simpler. And I sometimes, would I have loved to add the beach in Hawaii and the weather and everything, but like, where do we go from here? Uh, and I, I'm going to turn this over to RS. RS is back. Like, where do we go to get that? I mean, a lot of people say to me, moving to Canada because they allow you to do that. I'm thinking to myself, well, again, I don't want to get into the vaccine and stuff, but where, where do we go find our community? Where's our Ohana now? And that's the question at 2 a.m. that came up for me is, where's our Ohana now, RS? 
I know you love Colombia. Uh, I, I do. And I, I love Canada and I love Spain as well, but I think from a community perspective, you got to build it around yourself. And I think you've done a good job of doing that in Hawaii and everyone has to find in their own. I don't think there's a utopian place that we can all immigrate to. And it's not Portugal. It's not, no, Amsterdam. it's none of those places. And, you know, Canada, you probably used to be Canada used to be probably one of the closest things to a democratic sort of utopian system until recent, I would say the last 10, 15 years, a lot of things have changed, right? A lot of, you know, a lot of control by the government, the way they regulate particular industries, the way they, they monetize, you know, a lot of different issues. Um, so that, I don't think you're going to, there's a magical answer to that. I think it's up to all of us to do what we can to build our own communities. And I think going back to the shared sort of vision here in terms of plant-based medicine, I think what we're doing and what we're all, you know, putting our time, effort, money, our souls into is, is going to help. I think there's an, there's a really unique opportunity to give patients access to plant-based medicine while we generate enough evidence to then have these products approved for reimbursement drug status that can ultimately eliminate and, you know, reduce the use of some of the other conventional synthetic drugs, you know, and I think that, that that's the community for me is, is the, is the physicians, the patients, the patient advocacy groups, the researchers, the people we work with, the investors that help us get there that believe in a long-term vision. And now that the markets are down, I love it when markets are down like that. And I know I sound like a lunatic don't get, right don't now. Don't get me excited. Don't get me excited. You know, you know, I love it too. You know, so I'm going to paint for you guys this utopian civilization that I used to think about. You know, I love journaling. I've been journaling for over 30 years every day. Uh, I write a lot. And I talk about, like, this place where my humidifier spurts out, you know, the most perfect cannabis smoke. And I have, like, nano microdoses of silly in my water. And again... Like, I think I want to be around people that are empathetic and people that I read something the other day that kind of blew my mind. And we're going a little philosophical and then I want to turn back around to something with RS. But it's like if you in a in a study, they said that they asked a certain amount of people if somebody had an accident, would you stop to help somebody? And it was like, it wasn't even 80%, but 90% of people said no. And their big issue was getting into legal trouble. Like empathy. How do we get that back? These are empathetic products. Why has alcohol, why has fentanyl, why do we continue to go down this road I read another study that said 24,000 companies are in the CBD business and like 99% of them are operating illegally in the U.S. and the FDA doesn't know what to do about it. About it. So I guess, yeah, RS, what do, what, what do we do, brother? What's, what's the plan of attack? I think there's, I think on one side, the governments are being restrictive. The governments are taking a very slow process, specifically the United States in terms of liberalization of, I would say, you, a lot of these. You, are you pro FDA? Um, in some things, yes, but most things, no. I mean, in some things, I think having a regulated system that allows you to get drugs approved and have claims and give access to patients, give access to reimbursement is necessary. How this is all prioritized, the interworkings that they all have, 
where, you know, CEOs and board members amongst the big pharma companies are associated to the FDA. That's where, that's where all the greed sort of, you know, sort of kicks in. Right. But the process of standardizing medicine and generating evidence and then, you know, providing the right guidance, dosing titration for any type of medicine being planned or not is the right path, you know, and that's the way you're going to get access to, for, for patients. And that's how you're going to get buy-in from physicians. But, you know, within every system, there's faults, and there's a lot of faults within the Health Canada system. There's a lot of faults within the FDA system for these plant-based medicines. But on the other hand, the non-regulated pathway is risky as well because, you know, these guys that are selling what you call the illegal CBD, who knows what's in that product? Yeah. That's not being tested. You know, a pediatric kid could, could, could be getting CBD. Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, I mean, all the bad actors got into these into these spaces. I mean, so, I mean... How do we establish empathy, Anthony? Where, where you're, you're an empathetic I, soul? Yeah, I, I think you have to empower the individual, right? I think that's the number one thing: educate people, give people access, give people the, and encourage people to reach out to one another and find a community, right? Because what we've done, there's a term, I think it's uh, dialectical materialism, right, is the term. And in simple terms, it means that I make the world and the world makes me. So the way the world is now is, right, people, your, your culture used to be assigned to you, right? You used to be born somewhere and you were assigned a village. Now in the U.S., for example, you're not assigned one, right? So we need to empower people to go and reach out for, to find common ground and to build their own bridges, right? People were afraid to do that, right? So I think that's the number one thing, right? Getting that will and intention, right? But because somebody, right now where somebody, we are. Somebody wouldn't stop if somebody had an accident, but if they were on uh, an empathogen, maybe they would. How do we shift that that 90% you know, of people that won't stop? Yeah, you're asking how do, how do, how do we get people to, see, to, be, to be their brother's keeper, right? How, how do you get to that level? How do we get people level? to be the best version of themselves? Commonality, yeah. And, I mean, that, that's a multifaceted, very, very, very kind of like <laughs> philosophical question. But I think, again, at the core of it, it comes with culture, right? Culture top-down and individual bottom-up. They have to meet together. Right now, our culture is driven by the past couple hundred years of individualism, materialism, and isolation, right? These are all things that were promoted top-down into our culture, and it made us fight against one another. And now we've, we discovered that we fucking hate that, right? So now our culture needs to shift. It reminds me of Valhalla, Vikings. Slaughter <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> your enemies. Like, the yeah. Wolf of Wall Street was a hero, when in fact he yeah. stole from people, but he was lauded as a hero, right? But he's, so a, but he's, a, but he's a hero now. He's in Miami. He's a hero. He's That's making tons of money. Think about who our heroes are, right? They're people yeah. that, that steal from the poor for themselves, right? Yeah. Like they're not, we, we, until we look at the world differently as not as this dog-eat-dog thing. But I think another specific problem is the Koch brothers are big in part to blame for why things are the way they are in the U.S. They figured out that they intervened at the college level, right, and controlled professors and promoted a libertarian ideology that said, is there a finite pie? You got to steal from one another, deregulate everything, right? That imbued a psychology that formed the minds of business leaders for two generations, right? And so until we can get a new culture and a new idea, and I think uh, lastly, I'll say this so I don't digress too much, is that notice that this my generation, for example, is the first to not have a manifesto or a Bible to lean on. 
right? We are the first that has broken away from institutions. We we discovered the all the different awful things that like you know dogmatic religion has done to us on a personal level. Governments have done to us. We've ripped down our institutions, but we haven't replaced it with anything. So we we all we're all in this no man's land, well, the, right? The, we're the grasping. New, the, the new Bible is Instagram. I mean, that somebody said that to me the other day. That's where. That's where a majority of people go and get what I would call their cognitive biases. So, worst possible place. <laughs> so, so yeah. again, it it comes down for me, and you know, we'll, the, we could talk about this all day, and we have before is empathy. How do we give people empathy? So, you know, we all have a story. I have to remember that. You know, we're gonna wind down this podcast. Uh, you know, the next couple, you know, next five ten minutes, but we all have a story. I get them all the time. I'm sure you guys do. People want access. People want quality access. There's a lot of bad actors out there. I'm very, very, very grateful that I get to be involved with people like yourselves. You guys are incredible humans. I, at the end of the day, am a person that invests in things that I believe in. I don't have the educational background are the background that these two individuals have. And I would say when people come to me and say, David, how do you determine, you know, who you invest in or who do you strategically partner with? These are two people that we are strategically partnered with because, you know, again, going back to the Hawaiian terms that have changed my life, Pono. Uh, right now we're working on the davidnixad.com website and, you know, we have this section called the Daily Pono. And for me, more than anything, it's about righteousness and doing the right thing. I will tell you, and I want to get this from you guys, our mantra in our company, which the better version of our company is my co-founder, Jason Hobson, incredible soul, you know, is a lawyer uh, in his day-to-day -day job, also the COO of our companies. And he always says... How you do anything is how you do everything. That is the mantra of our company. I'm going to go to Anthony first, then to RS. Anthony, what would you say is the mantra for Magmetis? Oh, man, if I were to synthesize it, right, into one, into one ethos, uh, is have have is courage. I would say everything is built around courage, right? In the sense of like, when you're doing something different, when you're doing something that hasn't been done before, you're going to hear a million reasons why not to do it or why things should stay the same. And so I encourage everyone to always have at least five whys, right? That are intrinsic to you that help imbue you with courage and meaning to be able to push through all of those dark moments of when you want to turn around, right? Five and then eventually be rewarded. Five mm -hmm. ones, you're saying. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll go with that. I'm, I'm interested to, to hear, hear that in a subsequent conversation. So it's five whys, and it's about courage for you. Exactly. RS? Conviction. What's the, what's the mantra, brother? I think the mantra drives me is to have the audacity to, to, to be the driving force for change, right? And, you know, within whatever... Uh, part of the world you want to change. For me, my since you know twenty two, twenty three, since post business school, my focus has been change, changing medicine, access to medicine, and the way we treat patients. How old were That's, you? How old were you when you took your company public? Twenty nine. I'm going to be very clear with somebody. 
TSX senior listing three or four hundred million dollar valuation? Yeah, I think when we went public, it was 250 million or something like that. I'm going to tell you, as a 46 year old man that has now seen the process of what a go public looks like, very difficult, very challenging. I would say to bring people together to execute that type of a project under 30, wow. And those are the people we look for. Anthony, you, what was your big, what's been your big inflection point? You're in your mid-30s now. Yeah, no, my big inflection point was honestly uh, bringing in finally a collection of minds where I could build a platform to invest in psychedelic medicine, right? I love that. I knew what I wanted to do, but I knew that I couldn't do it alone. And I'm very good at knowing and seeking out the people I need to be able to build a movement, right? So now the stars have aligned, right? I have the right investors. I have the right scientists. I have the right consultants, the right advisors. It's the right time. I'm the right person, right? And so this is, I've never been more excited about anything in my entire life, right? And so now we're ready to move forward and do something that'll really have a large impact. So this is called the Orthogonal Podcast. Orthogonal was something that I heard a lot when I first was going to Silicon Valley 20-some years ago. It was this idea. Somebody explained it to me like this. I'm just going to throw it out there. Sitting at a coffee shop, you're talking about, let's say, Dong, our new sexual wellness brand. Some guy comes up and says, hey, uh, let me write you a $10 million check. Obviously, I I mentioned Dong because I'm excited about it, and I like the word. But orthogonal is about this, like, dumb luck, serendipity, I would have to say for both of you guys, I met you guys in those scenarios. Uh, the days that I met you, I didn't know if I was going to be at that very spot or how was how it was going to work out. Uh, in fact, I don't think Anthony and I spoke in maybe three and a half years. Uh, RS was a random encounter of me living in Hawaii and me moving to Miami for a year because of COVID. Uh, I would say kind of to bring this full circle, what was your orthogonal moment, RS, in your life? Like what was a, what, what has shifted you to where you are today? Are there any moments of dumb luck or serendipity? Um, the way this company was formed, you know, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a really interesting story. I had a very close family member of mine get diagnosed with cancer. Um, and, uh, no, she, she is very healthy and she, she's fine, but it was, it was one of those. And I was, I was involved in oncology at the time, which is really ironic. And when I, when we, when I went with her to meet the oncologist, the oncologist told her that it, the cancer is relatively in, inactive and therefore she's going to go into what we call wait and watch. Like, what do you mean wait and watch? <laughs> you know, wait and watch. Let's wait for the cancer to get active. And my solution to that, even though I was already very much immersed in the biotech, biopharma oncology space was, all right, let's fix your diet. Let's fix your lifestyle. Let's get you some, what was at the time, Rick Simpson oil, you know, full concentrate, full oh spectrum God, cannabis oil. <laughs> right. Everybody so I got Rick Simpson. Oil. Everyone. So I got her access to that. And through that, I met one of our, uh, one of my friends that, you know, we, we started the company together and this, the approach was arrest can, cause I, I was able to help this particular family member uh, a lot. And from there, his comment was, well, how do we get this to more people? And I said, well, that's where the whole concept of Abicana came from. It was, 
you need to generate the data, the evidence, because I think we're, we're wrong to assume all physicians are evil and all pharma is evil. No, you have pioneers, warrior physicians that are out there, many of which I consider friends in Canada that are the first to prescribe, the first to do clinical trials. And these people want to believe you, but you still they still need to adhere to particular codes. So give them the evidence, give them the substance, give them standardized products. And I think that's that was the moment for me, you know, when I realized that there's an opportunity here to see someone that was very near and dear to me, benefit from it. And then coming from that biotech side, the combination of which, you know, resulted in me creating Avicana. So and that, that we're, that, we're that here now. Your, that's your orthogonal moment. I love it. Again, boom time. Boom Anthony, time. What's your, what's your orthogonal moment, brother? I mean, similar to us about how Magmetis came together. I mean, I was like, okay, let me go build my team. And everyone I managed to find was no more than one degree removed from me, meaning that the sum total of the people I've met and the decisions I've made and the code that I've kept in my life gave me the ability to bring the team out, right? So like my co-founder, Dr. Gregory Wells, he was one of the forward-thinking folks in clinical leaders at, at MAPS, which is working on empty-assisted therapy. Uh, I asked my friend who is a, a surgeon, he's a, he's a plastic surgeon, and I was like, do you know anyone in the medical space that's in psychiatry? And he was like, my best friend is Dr. Gregory Wells. We hung out in residency in New Orleans, you gotta meet him, right? And he's like, what, what are the odds? Not in the same field, right? Um, and these sort of coincidences kept happening when there was a resource I needed, a, a person I needed to find, an, an investor like yourself that I needed to get to, it was someone I'd already met or someone who was only one degree removed. So that and then, you know, the true sort of what imbued me was the first time I've ever had DMT assisted therapy, right, in a therapeutic setting. And it was the, I was someone that was an atheist before that experience and then came out of it believing in connectivity a potential for a higher power, right? In a true ego dissolution of a world beyond myself. I had felt so alienated by the world through the war on drugs, right? Being a black man in America, I felt alone and unwanted by the world in general, right? The world just wishing that black men would just go away, right? It seemed to be the prevailing mantra. And it was the first time I ever felt like truly hugged or embraced. And that single administration was enough to imbue me with the will to push through for years later, right? And then, so I think that was my true orthogonal moment. Can you, can you give me, I, I, our meeting last week, it, it blew my mind with Jerry, Sav, it, your, your wife, Anna. Can you share that story about the, you were in the bar having some food with the, with the guy with the swastika? Yeah, no, I mean, it, yeah, it's sure. a lot of our, I, it was weird. It was like deja vu's. I'm going to say this, something about Washington, D.C., it's there. There's been a lot of synergies with us, you know, connecting three and a half years, three and a half years later. But can you give us that story? Sure. I mean, like you said, we're all mirrors of each other. And I think that, you know, when you think about a parallel life path that we've took in an intersectionality, it's it's it seems obvious now that we would come together at this time. Um, But, yeah, no. So I was a younger man, early finance career. I was traveling uh, to Alabama for work. I landed. It was a long flight. Uh, I wanted to go to. Was this after Harvard? Yes. Yeah. A few years after Harvard, after like probably 2013, like a few years after the financial crisis and things started to stabilize. So called 2013, 2012. uh, And I'm in the bar and I, you know, Alabama has fantastic fried catfish and and great barbecue. So I went to a a local pub, got my catfish sandwich and and a shot of whiskey. Right. And I'm about to indulge. 
and I get a tap on the shoulder and it's before I could even take a bite. So I'm like, okay. And I turn around and uh, there is a, a white male, a gentleman standing behind me and he pulls up his shirt and he has a swastika from nipple to navel, like covering oh his, his entire belly, like commitment, right, to the cause. Totally. Uh, and I look like behind him, I peer behind him and I see a few other, clearly of his buddies, right, egging him on to do this. And he says, what's up, N-word? I won't, I won't repeat what he said. Oh, shit. Uh, he goes, what do you think about this? And I was like, I, I took a deep breath, right? And I think if, if he had caught me, I was back in D.C. at 18, yeah. my reaction would have been very different, okay. right? But as I've learned to try to, let you say, live, live your truth, be a change, I saw it as an opportunity to change someone's mind, right? For the better, forever, Right. So I was like, you know what? It's been a long flight. Why don't you sit down and I'll buy you around. And he looked at me in a quizzical way because he was surprised by that reaction. I assume. Right. He sat down. We started talking. We shared food. His friends ended up walking away. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, you know, lady, you're the good kind of black. And then in my head, I had the opportunity at that, too. But I was like, Anthony, you just took this guy from swastika to good black in two hours, right? Don't ruin it, right? It's, it's those kind of things, like, you know, to have patience and empathy for everyone and understand the long-term vision of, like, he's now going to look at minorities differently for the rest of his life, right? He, I don't think he will do that again. No, hopefully, hopefully not. What? Empathy, empathy. So can you tell people how to get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're up to? How do they contact you? I'm not trying to ask for your telephone number, but how does somebody get a hold of Anthony? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm a very much a direct message, open book kind of guy. So Anthony at magmetis.com, M-A-G-M-E-T-I-S.com. What, what I encourage somebody, direct access. What, what, what should somebody say in the subject line if they want to talk to you? I mean, what do you look for? I know you get a lot of emails and messages, too. Yeah, no, I, I think just be direct, right? I have folks, for example, with schizophrenia, unfortunately, they reach out to me a lot looking for treatment and psychedelics. And I have to tell them that, you know, as of right now, it hasn't been tested in their indication. You know, I'm there for them in that community. If they want to think about how to, how to, yeah, email. Yeah, email is okay. the best way to do it. So uh, Hannah, it doesn't matter what walk of life, just reach out. To Hannah, we'll get all the information. We'll get everybody up. Uh, we'll get your information. RS, how do we get in touch with you? You're very... Getting in touch with RS is difficult sometimes. I have to call him like seven times. <laughs> yeah, back to backs, man. No, I, I'm easy to find it. LinkedIn, Arasazadian, uh, email arasazadian at abicana.com. If somebody wants to do business with Avocana, what do they need to say? Like, how does somebody get your attention? You get a look. Lot. If it's someone real and they're not, they're not, you know, spam because I get five hundred of those, right? So as long as a real person reaching out, if they're referencing, you know, this discussion, then I know it's someone real and it's not some bot sending an automated message. I think that's probably a good there, approach. There's going to be about fifty thousand people plus that this will get sent to. So wow. full disclosure, and I'm going to leave this as kind of the final remarks. Again, not soliciting money here, not giving any financial advice if you are interested in talking to anthony or rs you're welcome to speak to them obviously you know we have our own investment committees and people that we go to to make these types of decisions i will tell you i am humbled by this discussion um i it make it gives me validation and 
empowerment to know that there are people out there working on this stuff. I'm going to tell you, and, I, and I've said this many times, to be an entrepreneur is sacrifice in many, many other parts of your life. I talk about this often as it relates to my children. I've sacrificed much of my children's first decade of being alive to uh, working on these projects. But this is what it takes to do this type of stuff. And it's not for everyone. But again, um, we hope we've empowered. We hope we've given you some good information. And, you know, again, it's not about religious religious background or sexual preferences or any of this other bullshit. This is about being real. And we all live on this earth. Um, chatted a lot with the locals in Waikiki. I was with my kids the last two days. We were talking about one of them always tells me, they go, David, I'm going to throw your fucking phone in the ocean. You need to connect with the land, connect with nature. And, and again, you know, bringing the aloha spirit here in this podcast. And um, this isn't about betting or gambling or all the other podcasts where we're advertising. This is about neutrality, good causes. And I always say this, helping as many people as possible because we all bleed the same. Anthony R.S., Lots of love, brothers. Aloha. Can't wait to have you guys here. Uh, we are sitting in Ala Moana in Hawaii on Oahu, grateful of the energy from Hawaii and uh, just grateful to be on this planet Earth. It's a very, we have a very short time here. Aloha, guys. <laughs>